I want to talk to people who have been through this transformation. I want to invite people who are struggling with it, who have failed at it. I'm someone who's always been drawn to where beautiful theory of computing meets the awkward, messy, hairy reality of actually trying to do things. People want to do good work. People want to be asked to do things that matter. If you're doing something that you believe matters, then you want to do a good job. Everybody talks about wanting to ship faster and with more confidence. Nobody has any confidence because they shouldn't. Instrumenting so that you can ask any question and understand any answer is both an art and a science. And the amazing thing about that particular feature of observability is that it's instantiated user empathy. We have a real problem with masochism. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it's like the infrastructure mantra right there. Hello, and welcome to OllieCast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Marion Ventures. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. What are your goals for this podcast? I think that the idea was born when I realized how many people were saying, yeah, I get the tech, I get the changes that are happening, but I don't know how to introduce this to my org. I don't know how to, like the physics of rolling this out across my organization. I don't know how to get people on board. I don't know what cultural changes need to happen. Because the more you think about it, it's such a sea change in the way you approach computing and developing that it kind of gets bigger the more you look at it. And so I really just wanted to hear people's stories, you know? I want to talk to people who have been through this transformation. I want to invite people who are struggling with it, who have failed at it. I personally only learn through other people's stories and pain, so I thought it would be a good idea to listen to them. I also really just want us to get inspired. Now that I, I have a company, I find that people don't trust my my word as much as they used to, you know? Like, I, there are some topics that they'll, if I talk about databases, they're like, yeah, sure, fine. But if I'm, like, talking about observability, they're like, well, you have something to sell. And they're not wrong, you know? Yeah. They're not wrong. Uh, so I want to bring some more credible voices in because some of the claims that we make are kind of fantastic. Yes. We're saying things that have been, never been possible before are now possible, and more than that, they're trivial, they're easy, which is always something that makes you kind of cock your head and go, what are you trying to sell me? But I believe that the transformation really is that large and that worth investing in. You know, I feel like as an engineer, if you're asking me to learn an entirely new system, a new language, a new community, a new tool, it has to be at least 10x better than my old one. At least 10x. At least. And this is, but it it's also never trivial when it's that large of a change. So I just think that it's time to start collecting those stories and, and talking about them. Great. Feels like a good time for us to introduce ourselves. It does. I'm Rachel Chalmers. I'm with Marion Ventures. I'm an investor in Charity's company, Honeycomb. Yay! I'm Charity Majors. I am the CEO and co-founder of Honeycomb. My history is kind of polyglot, but very operationally focused. I've been an early or first engineer on the infrastructure side repeatedly. I was at Linden Lab back in the crazy days of Second Life. I went to a couple of small startups that they were very different from each other after that. And then I landed at Parse, where I was the first infra engineer. I was there. I built the systems. I then switched to management at some point and built the teams. I was there through the Facebook acquisition. And I'm someone who's always been drawn to where beautiful theory of com computing meets the awkward, messy, hairy reality of actually trying to do things. 
And that's what brings me to Honeycomb. My career path has been oddly parallel, but also extremely different. I'm a failed English professor. I got more interested in the computer science department than the English literature department at the school where I did graduate studies. It was downhill from there, ending up in a, a small apartment in San Francisco. So that's why the Oscar Wilde references. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be stopped. I ended up joining together with a group of friends and becoming employee number 10 at an industry analyst company called 451, where I built the infrastructure practice. Oh, wow. So I basically told stories about infrastructure. I was the first analyst to cover some companies you might have heard of, like VMware and Cloudera Damn. and Splunk. And we sold a lot of our research to investors. So eventually an investor took a punt on me, decided to give me a, a crack at, at actually putting my money where my mouth was. I spent four years at one investment firm where I invested in wit.ai, which got sold to Facebook, and Doco, and <laughs> moved on from that gig to a new gig where I'm investing in infrastructure companies majority owned by women, which is a whole nother story. Awesome. But one thing that really became apparent to me in the course of talking to probably 12 or 1300 startups by now is that infrastructure is highly, highly leveraged. The decisions that people make about infrastructure software reverberate for many years, much longer than decisions about applications. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to have an outsized impact in the work that I did, uh, the infrastructure layer was was the place to do it. I've always said that the lower you go in the stack, the more powerful you become, which is, you know, it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but there is a lot of, there's a great feeling to be powering the thing that everything else rests on. You yes. know, it's an invisible dependency. When you're doing your job well, nobody knows you exist. And it comes back to what you said about the hairiness of computing. I think one thing that frustrates me about the tech industry as a completely unreconstructed 90s tech idealist is how far we fall short of the promises that we've made. And there's no real technical reason why we can't keep those promises. The, the limitations are all human factor. The limitations yeah. are all cultural. And so one of the things that I've become increasingly passionate about over the years is trying to not even to change the culture of technology, but trying to get people to actually walk the walk. Everyone talks a good yeah. talk here. I look at it like it's so much easier to, instead of shutting people down, saying, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing this. It's like telling somebody, stop eating candy, stop eating cake. You know, It doesn't work. What does work is giving somebody something exciting that's better that they can do. And because I'm a massive nerd, it ties into my huge interest in policy, public policy, and game theory, where yeah. you can incent the right kinds of behavior without coercing people. Take all, but it, you actually make it a collaborative outcome. Exactly. These things don't have to be you were a winner before and now you're a loser. It can be we all win together. We have the power. And so let's talk specifically about observability. We've talked mm -hmm. a lot about infrastructure. What's the narrative arc of a life that ends in hosting a podcast about observability specifically? <laughs> yeah, well, it comes from a lot of failure. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that Winston Churchill said about the United States? They always do the right thing eventually when they've exhausted all the alternatives. <laughs> I feel like this is like how we've arrived at everything we know about distributed systems. Right. He also said that democracy was the worst of all possible systems of government, except for all of else. the others. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's very much how I feel about observability, too. It's kind of like an ambition of defeat, in a way, when it comes to predicting what problems you're going to have. 
I've been doing ops for years, you know, and the pattern has been you look at a system, you size it up, it got built, you know, it's beautiful, it's about to start serving traffic, and you're like, how should I monitor this thing? What problems am I going to have? You know, and then you write a bunch of checks, you generate a bunch of graphs, and then the site gets turned on, and if you're lucky, you you know, you could predict most of them, but inevitably, you can't predict a lot of them. And the balance between known unknowns and unknown unknowns is swinging hard. Yes. When you were building a LAMP stack to serve an e-commerce website, cool, you can download like pre-generated Postgres or MySQL. You know, there's a lot of baked stuff because all of these systems were very much alike. Now, there's spaghetti. There's just fucking spaghetti all over the place and components. Like you may have a half a dozen different data stores, half of which are cutting edge, by which I mean completely broken. And you're gluing this together with, you know, routers that you read about in Hacker News because it seemed like a good idea at the time, or you didn't, somebody did. And you just have to like come in and make it work. And observability is basically just acknowledging, I can't predict it. <laughs> I can't. And it's stupid for me to even try because the failures that manifest in a distributed system are like this infinitely long tail of things that almost never happen, yes. except that once they did. Black or, swans galore. Yes. Or this it has to be like five different rare conditions that all collide. And you can't stage these. You can't find these in an artificial environment because it relies on real users, real scale, real data, you know, to even find these problems. So how how does a life like end up doing observability? <laughs> like I'll tell the story at Parse that that really crystallized in this. In this that we were getting acquired by Facebook in what was it 2013? Yeah. yeah, and this was about the time that I was coming to the dawning horror uh, of a realization <laughs> that we had built a system that was effectively undebuggable mm-hmm. by some of the best engineers in the world mm-hmm. doing quote unquote all the right things. And yet, like every day, someone would, customer would write in, they'd be like, Parse is down. They're very upset. I'm like, Parse is not down, motherfuckers. Like, look at my wall of dashboards. They're all (laughs) green. They're all green. Like, check your Wi Fi because you're Computer says no. Computer says no, right? (laughs) And I'd be arguing with them, which is a dumb thing to do with your users because you're not convincing them that they're not having pain. You're just losing credibility the longer you argue with them about their experience. Like so, eventually, I dispatched an engineer. Like, go figure out why this app thinks we're down. Like, maybe it's Disney. Maybe they're doing eight requests per second, and we're doing a hundred thousand requests per second. Never going to show up in any of my time series aggregates ever. Uh, it's never going to trigger a monitoring alarm. But like, it, we can be completely down for them. So, like, engineer would go off, investigate, and come back in hours, if not days, because yeah. of the sheer range of possible root causes. And granted, we were doing some crazy stuff, letting people just write their own database queries in MongoDB, upload them, and we just had to run them and make sure that they didn't affect anyone else. Good luck with that. <laughs> Same for JavaScript, right? You write it, I run it, I can see no problems here. What could possibly what could go possibly wrong? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it's like the infrastructure mantra right there. So it could be anything, right? And it could be some edge case that they were hitting on our systems. It could be something, a bug in the SDK. It could be anything. Hours or days, and sometimes we would just have to give up. We'd just be like, "Well, these guys are paying us two hundred bucks a month. We're going to choose not to answer their question because seventy, eighty percent of our time, both backend teams, was been seventy, eighty percent of our on-call time just tracking these down, and we were not shipping anything, and we were still losing ground." I cannot even tell you all the things that I tried. If there's a piece of software out there, I tried it. If there's a technique, a team thing, I tried it. Tried hiring more people, I tried it. The only thing that finally dug us out of this hole was getting some of our data into a butt-ugly Facebook tool called Scuba that's aggressively hostile to users. Like <laughs> It was developed 
developed is a kind word for it. It was thrown together back when they were trying to figure out their own demons in my sequel, mm-hmm. like 10 plus years ago. And it was just so useful that it just kind of hung around, even though nobody's invested in it. That plus a bunch of plumbing and you know stuff that we built ourselves to whatever. And it took us about six to nine months to, to roll this all out to all our entire systems. But even after a month or two, we had cut down the time that we spent understanding these issues from hours or days or impossible to seconds or minutes and predictably, like reliably. And even like sales and support could do it. They could tweak the, you know, ask this question about a new user and they could usually find it pretty quickly. So like I'm an ops. So like, you know, as soon as we had a handle on that problem, I was on to the next one. I didn't even really stop (laughs) to think about what had happened or why. All I knew was I wasn't hurting anymore. So I looked at something else, right? As we do. And it wasn't until I, I I was looking at leaving and I was planning to go be an engineering manager somewhere else. And I started thinking about going back to the old tools that I'd had to use. And I suddenly realized I no longer know how to engineer without this tool. Like I can't. It's like trying to imagine uh, writing software without my development environment and you know, without servers. And it's it's so fundamental to the way I understand what I'm doing that I knew that I would be half the engineer. And so that's when I decided this tool needs to exist. I mean, let me also say that every single tool's marketing site will tell you that they do all of the things <laughs> that we do, every single one. So there was a long period where Christine and I were just going to trying them all and talking to their users. And that's when we realized just how much pent up, barely pent up, anger and frustration there is out there with everything with all these solutions that they've been trying for so long and the ways that they fall short. And so it wasn't until we started, I was like, well, let's see if we can build this thing, right? Uh, So then if nothing else, I can open source it and I'll always have it. I'll never (laughs) have to engineer without this thing. And we started building it. And that's honestly when I started to understand what underlying characteristics had made this experience so transformative for me. And that was when I started to understand that this wasn't just a platform problem like I had thought. But this is a problem of complexity of systems yes. and the range of possible outcomes, and everybody is hurtling towards this cliff. You know, there's a tipping point, and it can be from a lot of different things. Sometimes it's from the complexity of uh, the product itself, yep. uh, the platform where you invite users to do creative things in your systems. It can be when you adopt microservices. Sometimes it comes from Kubernetes. But there comes a point when you can just no longer predict most of the problems that you're going to have. Emergent complexity. Emergent complexity, and you know it when you hit that wall. Everyone knows it because they're helpless. They start homebrewing stuff. They're desperate because they can't, they cannot understand their problems. So the reason I'm grinning like an idiot over here is because we haven't actually had this conversation before. And the moment at which you left Facebook and started to build Honeycomb is when you and I met. Yeah. And to hear you describe observability as a a failure of pre-existing tools cracks me up because I was looking for a Honeycomb. Because history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And all of this has happened before and will happen again. I mentioned that I was among the first analysts to cover VMware. And then immediately afterwards, Splunk and New Relic appeared. Mm. I invested in Docker. I was looking around for a tool that would let people manage the infinitely increased complexity of systems based on microservices. Mm -hmm. So I walked into that meeting knowing that you were onto something and and for you to perceive that as a failure of all of the others, the other avenues. Not until it bashed me in the head. Right. (laughs) I, I had been waiting for an engineer to figure out that the complexity had spiraled out of control. And most engineers are just way too arrogant ever to admit that they can't 
comprehend everything that's going on in their systems. Yeah, there is a real urge for control, for the yes. illusion of control that we all have. And you look at the, the sales pitch of every tool, it's like, you just buy this and you will always know what's happening. You never have to think about it. You never have to figure it out. The tool will tell you what to look at. And honestly, I'm clearly a humanities bigot, but I do think this is one of the serious monocultural risks to Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley is that so many people came up through STEM careers and Mm -hmm. business careers, and they're really uncomfortable with uncertainty. Yeah. And hi, the real world is full of uncertainty. (laughs) The black swan idiom just cracks me up because I was 23 before I saw a swan that wasn't black. Where I come from... Uh All swans are black. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Well, and, and you when you start talking to engineers, especially if you get them a little drunk, you pick <laughs> up this rock and suddenly all of the bugs scurry out and you realize just how many people feel a lot of shame. Yes. Because they know how many of their postmortems they never know the root cause for. Like, right. they don't know. And nobody wants to admit that because it makes it sound like you're a bad engineer, you know? Everybody always gets to the root of it immediately because we're all, you know, incredibly good at what we do. <laughs> And and the shame is horrible because yeah. it means that a lot of what we're building, we're building on delusions. Yes. And that is a really strong way to create very weak and flawed software, yes. which is what we're seeing happen. Yes. And shame is a real, like we talk about blameless postmortems, yes. but we don't really talk much about shameless processes. Right. Or, you know, not shaming people for, for not knowing things, for not always being the expert, for all, not always knowing what to do. And how do we meet them where they're at? The other thing that I think this culture of like rationality and empirical solutions to problems squishes is real curiosity, genuine inquisitiveness. Open-endedness. Exactly, exactly. These systems are becoming organic in their complexity. And that's super interesting. And nobody really wants to talk about it, except in the context of, oh, Roko's basilisk, AIs are going to eat us. What if they don't? What if AIs are something completely unimaginable? I, I bet they will be. And we're not having real conversations about that because of the fear and the shame. We're not. I want to pivot off of what you said about curiosity and exploration to talk a little bit about like the philosophy that I think that we all share at Honeycomb. It's a certain type of person that's attracted to work at Honeycomb. They're, they're a very interesting breed. But it has to do with um, exploration and curiosity and being comfortable with the unknown, like you said. And you have to give people that dopamine hit of, oh, I found it. Oh, there's this thing that... I didn't know that customers were going to find, and I found it before they did. And in order to do that, I think that the key is is social interaction. Yes, is the the social graph, as you know, Facebook would say, because it is incredibly time consuming and difficult and expensive to debug something, to learn something, to learn the full stack all the way down to that one little bug in OpenSSL that was written, you know, 14 years ago and that's why your thing is crashing. It takes all this time and then it decays rapidly. It's so cognitively expensive to understand these things and it's so cheap to share. The one that got away from me as an investor was Slack. I looked at Slack really early on and I tried to get that firm interested and I could not because, again, the power of Slack is in its social engagement, in the fact that it magnifies everyone's intelligence. Compounds your impact, really. We talk a lot about how can we bring everyone up to the level of of your best expert in every single area. Because if one person knows it, everyone should have access to that information. It should be like like the iPhone is like your outsourced brain. You don't have to page it into RAM all the time. You don't have to remember it. It lives somewhere and you can find it when you need to. Only 80s kids will understand having to remember your friend's phone numbers. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) 
Yes, but like if I get paged and it's about something that I don't know well, it's like an outage with Cassandra, say, and I don't know anything about Cassandra. But I do know that we had an outage, you know, two or three months ago, and I think Christine was on call. And like, that's all I need to know to find what she did to solve it. Like literally the questions that she asked while she was trying to understand it. What did she think was interesting enough to leave a note or add to a postmortem or post to Slack or share with a friend or, you know, someone else on the team? And like, getting access to that information, or it could be me, maybe I debugged it and I've completely forgotten it because it was a year ago, you know? If we can just help people forget less, yes. if we can just help them be slightly better versions of themselves and embed themselves more and draw on the wisdom of, of their team, because when an engineer walks out the door and takes all of their information with them, all of their data with them, it's such a loss to the team. And if you're leaning on that person and calling them every time there's a problem with the thing that they know well, that sucks too. That leads to the burnout, that leads to attrition, that leads to, you know, we would never accept that in a distributed system. Why do we expect that in our teams? Because we think that humans are disposable or fungible and they really yeah. aren't. Yeah. What is the biggest problem you're trying to solve right now and why is it difficult? So the biggest problem we're trying to solve right now, it will unsurprisingly not be technical. We're very privileged to have a team where I can literally just hand wave away questions like, okay, we need a new storage engine, we'll just write one. You know, mm -hmm. The tech is table stakes. It's, it's always the product questions of how do we make this the thing that people need that they don't know that they need. Like one of our biggest problems is always that people tell us that they want a faster horse, not a car. <laughs> if we listen to our users, we would be building better metric systems. Listen, I genuinely want a faster horse. And I not know a car. you do, honey. I know you do. I wish I could help you with that. Uh, but it's difficult because people, because of path dependency and the fact that the industry has 20 years now of developing monitoring systems where you kind of predict what you want to ask, and you ask the question again and again, you check the expected state to the actual state, and with metrics. And so metrics, you can use the term in two ways. One is just a synonym for data, mm -hmm. and the other is like stats D type metrics, where mm -hmm. it's a number, and you have tags that you can append to the numbers. And these are very, very fast, very performant, but they have characteristics. You've stripped away all of the context of that number. You can't link it to anything else in that event, which means that you have no ability to use it for debugging whatsoever. And you can't have high cardinality because of the right amplification of the tags that you've appended to the metric. Every time you write that metric, instead of being fast and cheap, you write the metric in all of the tags, which is very slow, like, like exponentially slower the, the more you add. So you're limited in cardinality to the number of tags you can have, which is typically a couple hundred. And when I say high cardinality, definition time. All I mean is, say you have a, a set of 100 million users. Your highest cardinality information is always going to be in a unique ID, mm -hmm. unique social security number, very high cardinality. Very high cardinality, but not the highest, would be first name and last name. Mm -hmm. Low cardinality would be things like gender. Mm, less low than it used to be. Less low than it used to be, <laughs> sure, but lower than last name. Yeah. And the lowest of all would be something like species equals human, yes. right? Yeah. So when you think about this intuitively, you know that almost all of the interesting identifying information is very high cardinality. It's in the long tail. It's in the long tail. And, you know... And you cannot have high cardinality when you are using metrics. And people have been told for years at almost every conference that this is impossible. You can't do it. It can't be done. And they're right. You can't do it with metrics because of the way you're storing bits on disk. <laughs> you can absolutely do it. This is not a hard data problem at all. They've had nice things in BI for years. Mm -hmm. Like if BI worked the way systems did, they would start with a few dashboards that represented the possible end stage answers 
And they just like start flipping through to see which one best matched the question that they were trying to ask. You know, number of users that converted to blah. That's insane. We would never tolerate that. Instead, they, they start by asking a small question. Then they look at the answer. Based on the answer, they ask another question. And they follow the breadcrumbs of data where they're leading you. Mm-hmm. It seems so easy when you think of it that way, and yet we haven't had this in systems land. And so, like, all of the mental muscles that we would use to follow these breadcrumbs and debug things intuitively don't exist. Mm -hmm. It is so much easier for us to take a new grad from college and just plop them in front of Honeycomb and they get it immediately. It's harder for someone who's been using metrics and monitoring for 20 years and has baked in all of these assumptions about how they have to ask the question in these weird ways that get around it and don't use any high cardinality. And if you Google like high cardinality and metrics, all you find is a bunch of people trying to tell you how not to have these problems. And you can't. <laughs> you know, Context is also very important. And the wider your event is, the more context you have, the more weird edge cases you can tease out, right? Yeah. So you want an extremely wide event. This is why we had to write our own storage engine doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So uh, that was kind of a long rambling answer about uh, one of the hard problems, which is just getting people to change their frame Yes, and understand that they can just ask the question directly and it's simple and it's easy. This gets back to why we want to have customers on this because and users and people who can t- talk about having gone through this journey mm-hmm. because it sounds like crazy vendor speak when you're just like, well, you can do this and it's magic and it just works and it's easy. So I'm not credible on this topic. Yeah, yeah. There's also trying to convince teams that owning your shit and being on call does not have to be a, a life sentence. It doesn't have to be miserable. Well, this that again comes be back better. to Silicon Valley's devaluing of, of human labor. Absolutely. Like when you talk to software engineers about being on call, the first thing that comes to mind is all of the suffering that they've seen ops teams undergo mm-hmm. and, and impose on themselves. Like we have a real problem with masochism. Yes, like I'm over 30 now. I don't want to get woken up anymore either. Like <laughs> you still have a problem with workahol. I'm I just going to say. I do, but that's lifelong. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to get woken up and I value my time. I value everyone's time. And the fact is that on call does not have to be miserable. The outcomes are measurably better. You know, putting people on call who know how to develop the software, you know, we call this software ownership yeah. where the same person has access, you know, builds something, uh, debugs, triages, talks to customers occasionally, has the ability to deploy, roll back, and is on call sometimes. It doesn't say you have to do those things all of the time. It says that you can do the, these things, you understand how and the value of them. Making that feedback loop short and without a bunch of extra hops means you need an order of magnitude fewer people, honestly. It means that their time is better used. It means that you're not dropping as many packets. You know, the, it's like a game of telephone. You know, the ops team gets paged and escalates to this other team and who isn't the owner, so they escalate to someone else. And by the time it eventually gets to the person who wrote it or who understands it or the person who takes the time to debug it, a lot of the context and immediacy is lost. It maybe isn't reported correctly. You know, it's a mess. It's a giant mess. This is why nobody likes these rotations. But it can be so much easier and it can be so much more empowering to have that ownership and control. My hunch is that this is where the really long-term dividend of observability will come from. Uh, This combination of a much more collaborative process and just giving people more agency and autonomy and problem solving. Yes, exactly. And and there are safety and security issues. And a lot of people will go, I can't give my software engineers root. Well, this is so that you don't have to give them root. Right. They should not have to log into a machine to debug their code. They should be instrumenting it at the right level of abstraction so that they can 
ask and answer new questions. Have we even defined observability yet? We have not. Let's define Let's observability. <laughs> what does observability mean? Well, the term is taken from control theory, mm-hmm. as everybody's seen the Wikipedia definition. But applied to software, all that it really means is you can understand the inner workings of a system, the software and the system, by asking questions from the outside. You can understand the inside by asking from the outside without, and this is key, without having to ship new code every time. Mm-hmm. Right? It's easy to ship new code to answer a specific question that you found that you need to ask. But instrumenting so that you can ask any question and understand any answer is both an art and a science. And your system is observable when you can ask any question of your system and understand the results without having to SSH into a machine. One of the analogies that I've been using to convey my enthusiasm to my non-technical friends is that metrics and monitoring up until now have just been a burglar alarm. Observability Mm. is closed-circuit TV. Nice. This speaks to one of the reasons I think it's important that we have a different term. A lot of people have gotten really up in arms about, you know, monitoring covers all of us. It's been long understood because black box, wipe, whatever. We have 20 years of best practices we've built up for monitoring systems. And I'm not saying throw these out the door. It's very important to monitor your systems. But the best practices are often the exact opposite of observability best practices. And I don't think it does us any favors to dilute the waters, to confuse the two. For example, a classic best practice for monitoring is you should not have to stare at graphs all day. You should not have to look at them. You should trust your alerting system to let you know when there's a problem and you should go look at it. That's great. That's a great best monitoring practice. But with observability, with these very complex systems, it's a much better approach to have the best practice of When I ship some code, I'm going to go look at it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see what happened. Did what I expected to happen actually happen? Does anything else look weird around it? And just spend some time being curious and exploring. This should be muscle memory for Mm -hmm. anyone who's working in distributed systems because the alternative is one of two extremes. Either you never look at it, and therefore there are problems that exist for a long, long time, and they're completely baffling when, when someone does notice them, This is the way most of your systems look right now, by the way. The other extreme is you add a bunch of alerts to everything, Mm -hmm. and you drive yourselves and everyone else nuts, and your ops team quits, as they should, and you burn yourselves out, or you silence them all, and you never see them anyway, so you've just wasted all that effort. Like Those are your options. So you really need a best practice of, of just going and looking at it when you've shipped a change to your system. And And I feel like observability is, everybody talks about wanting to ship faster and with more confidence. Nobody has any confidence because they shouldn't, because they can't actually look at what... I think it's insane that we ship code and wait to get paged. (laughs) That is batshit. Yeah, yeah, wait for it to fail. Wait for somebody to hurt. To fail big enough that it rises to the threshold of one of our alarms. Yeah. That's crazy. It's so much better to just get in the habit of, of looking at your systems, especially when they're normal. Because if you're not used to looking at your systems when, when they're normal, you don't actually know what abnormal looks or feels like. And a lot of this is so, so subtle, and, and it takes intuition. And it takes you know, the familiarity of frequently looking at your stuff to see how it behaves under various conditions. That's where the curiosity comes in. Yeah. What is the thing intelligent bystanders most often misunderstand about your work? There are a couple of paired things, like they misunderstand that we are not just like monitoring and that we do not hate monitoring. Neither of those is true. A lot of people still try to think of about Honeycomb like it's a time series metrics mm-hmm. thing. They try to apply all of the same the same intuitions and they ask the questions in the same way and 
And I think it helps to just learn to visualize like what an event looks like. And you know that not everyone can visualize in no, multiple dimensions as easily as you can, uh, right? <laughs> well, no one's spent as much time on it. Um, <laughs> I think that the main thing that people misunderstand is that the paradigm shift is real. Mm-hmm. They've been told that this is impossible and they can't do it. They've been told that it's hard. It's not harder, it's easier mm-hmm. because it's actually addressing the problem instead of spackling over it with you know all these other tools. Empowering engineers does lead to better services, and it leads to better engineers. Like yeah. the feeling that I had at, was when I left Facebook, when I was like, I can't live without this. It's because it made me a better engineer. Yeah, and I didn't want to give that up. People want to do good work. People want to do good work. People want to be asked to do things that matter. Yes. Yeah. You know, and and if you're doing something that you believe matters, then you want to do a good job, and you want to have the ability to. Do your work, the the power and the trust to fix what needs to be fixed. There's nothing more frustrating as an engineer than being given, you know, something to do, like a task, not being given enough time to do it well, and then asked to support it, but not given enough time to fix it either. But just to like see that the users who want to use it, but it's kind of shitty, so they're complaining about it, but they care, but you you're not allowed to like do a good job for them. Or to not know how to do a good job. And, right. and a lot of this comes down to not being able to directly observe it. Yep. This is a giant like black hole that people don't notice is there because they've never seen into it, you know? And just being able to look at what you're doing and to like we talked about like what is what is a high cardinality field? Well, users, you know, being able to break down by one in a hundred million users and then any combination of everything else is how you answer questions from help desk tickets, you know. Users like, you know. I'm experiencing this. And we have all of these complicated ways of like looking at logs and looking at dashboards and trying to correlate what happened in this system with what happened in that system. Like people will have like half a dozen tools up trying to investigate instead of simply pulling up the service, breaking down by that user ID, and then like looking at errors and latency and like where they came from. And it's so simple. And the amazing thing about that particular feature of observability is that it's instantiated user empathy. You can literally yes. see things from you the user's point of view. You can be in their shoes. Yes. Like back to like the Disney example where I'm like, check your Wi-Fi. Well, after we got just our edge data set in, I could look and see if they were ever hitting our edge. Yep. And I could tell them confidently in about two seconds, ah, you're not hitting our edge. Check your Wi-Fi. And that's not a dick thing to say. Like, you're wrong. Check your, do- check your Wi-Fi. <laughs> so, no, you're not, you're not hitting our edge. We're not seeing your traffic. Yep. Or we are seeing it. And you know, here's the error rate. Here's the latency. Hmm, I'm going to investigate. Click, click, click. Oh, it's coming from this. Cert- One of the hardest problems in distributed systems is everything's slowing down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Especially for a system that loops back into itself, where any single node or service or database like node can slow down the entire thing you know and it's circular so you can't tell where it, unless you have observability and then it's like two clicks and every time you can go that one and once you know where to look then you can apply all your traditional tools and right now the number of systems that really see these kinds of errors is probably in the minority but yeah. all systems are trending that that's, way that's the other thing that smart people miss is that this is coming for them too yes yeah, this is a cliff that they too are likely to fall, unless they are planning on working on something very small forever. But most of us don't aspire to that. We like problems of scale. We like problems of you know, lots of users, and it can be hard to understand just how awful it is until you find yourself there and realize how lost you are. 
and how much time is going, how many bodies you're throwing at this. You know, people will try to solve this by hiring, outsourcing teams in India to just be like cannon fodder, you know, by like all this training, by like spending incredible sums of money to capture all of their information through like logs, when in fact they're just using the wrong tools and yeah. it doesn't have to be that hard. There's also just the, uh, the fact that everybody needs to get better at instrumentation. This is no longer optional for anyone. Like, no pull request should ever be accepted without being able to answer, how will I know if this doesn't work? Which is not something that we're used to. This is why like, I, I feel like observability-driven development is the next natural extension behind TDD. Yep. TDD was huge for the industry, right? Oh, we, we developed to, you know, to match the, the predicted output of these tests, but, but TDD stops at the border of your laptop. It does. Stops at the network. And that means it stops before you hit anything real. Throw it into production, and you don't really know what's going to happen. You don't, you don't have any idea. The only way to do this safely is to test in production. Yeah. And people are scared of that sentence, but they shouldn't be because they're already doing it, yep. whether they admit it or not. <laughs> and it's better, you know, every deploy is a unique test of that deploy artifact, that deploy script, and those sets of deploy targets. These are live human tests that would never pass an ethical review board. Exactly. And once we've admitted this to ourselves, then we can talk about how to make that safer and better with like canaries and feature flags and blah, 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 blah. That's a topic for a different podcast. Um, but observability-driven development means... You ship it safely, a small amount to production, and you watch it. Yeah. And you see what happens, and you gain confidence. And this is actually the only way to ship faster and more confidently, is to get better at observing it and to make that part of your development process. You release the code to production as soon as possible, and you watch it. And you develop based on what you see, what you see in that feedback. This cliff is coming for you, all of you dear listeners, and this is the beginning of a very long conversation that Charity and I are going to have with a bunch of our friends. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for being here with me, Rachel. This has been delightful. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day. 